those songs talking about our salvation, uh, the blessings we have uh, as worshipers of God, the promises we have of the future and the kingdom of God, uh, the hope that we have of no matter what happens, no matter what take, comes in this world, we have uh, hope of heaven and eternal life. Uh, and so what, glorious, glorious worship as the, as the church, as uh, we, we get to celebrate these things, the, the fact that we're forgiven of our sins by Jesus Christ, that, that we have uh, eternal life ahead because of what Jesus did on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and, and, and reconciling us to the Father. So, so many great things to think about that no matter what comes, we are safe and we have eternal life. It's, it's incredible to just ponder that. And, and so we worship today, right? Uh, but the mission of the church is, is uh, just not that, that close look at, uh, at our salvation and just thankfulness all the time for what has happened to us. The mission of the church is to make disciples. And churches say it in different ways. Churches, like, like one of the ways we've tried to say it is we, we exist to lead people to Jesus. And the church exists people to lead people to life-changing meet Jesus Christ, an ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ, to know Christ and to, and to follow him, become a disciple of Christ and a worshiper of Jesus. We're making worshipers is our mission. Uh, and, and boy, sometimes you look at that and, and it's such a hard thing and it seems like an impossible task. You know, it, it seems like it's so difficult and so challenging. And yet that's our calling and our mission. We, we could have a great fellowship here. We could, uh, you know, we have a campus that's beautiful. So many things that, that, are, that we're so appreciative, appreciative for. But we could be off mission. We, we could not be a church that's going with the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it's, it's our mission. But, you know, we, we, we think as, as we bring it home to the people we know or, you know, some of the people that are around us in our, in our families or, or the workplace that we, we work pe with people, that they're lost. And, and we, we look at some of those people are just so hard and so, so far from God, it seems. It, have you ever thought about some of the people uh, that you know that are lost, that need salvation? That, uh, have you ever felt like there's not a chance that they're coming to Christ? Have you ever got to that point where you, you said, man, that person is so hard. That person is so far from God. I, I don't think that they will come to Jesus. I don't think they will be saved. Maybe they claim to be an atheist, you know, they're just militant, or maybe, maybe uh, they belong to another religion, and they're very deeply entrenched in, the, in their religion, and, and there's no way that, we, you know, in, our, in our, our flesh or in our thinking, you know, our practicality, no way that person's coming to Jesus, <laughs> right? Or maybe, you know, somebody that's been deeply hurt by an institutional church or hurt by Christians, and they're just so angry. They're just fighting all the time, and you're like, oh, man, I don't know if that person's ever going to come to Jesus and be saved. And so today we come to a, a scripture that, you know, in the book of Acts, the mission of the church is forefront, and we got all these stories of people going and sharing. Today we come to the most famous conversion in the history of Christianity. We get to look at uh, a man who many people would have said, no way, no way that he'd ever be found, no, no way he'd ever be saved. And yet he was. And so it's an encouragement to us, a call to us to keep sharing the gospel. Keep going to people. Keep praying for people. Keep seeking to save the lost. Don't write anybody off. Don't give up on anybody. Nothing is impossible for God. Please open your Bibles to Acts 
chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, please. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We met, we met Saul a few weeks ago. Uh, Stephen, member of the first martyr of the church, as the rocks were being thrown against his body and the blood started to flow, Saul was there holding the coats of the, the guys who were tossing the rocks. He was giving approval. Uh, Stephen died that day, and, and uh, apparently it seemed like a good thing for all the people there to get rid of the rest of the Christians. Saul, um, who is this man? What was his story? So many fascinating stories. It's like every person here has a story. The family they grew up in, the adversities they faced, the victories they had, the, the educate, you know, just so many different stories. Saul grew up in a place called Tarsus. Apparently his dad was a master tent maker. He had a little bit of cash. He was a Roman citizen. Uh, you, you, got, you got to be a Roman citizen either through buying your citizenship or you did something special for Rome. Uh, we don't know his story, but uh, um, Paul grew up in a tent maker's family. Uh, the, the tents of Tarsus were famous. Uh, even today, you can go to the hills around southeast Turkey and see the, uh, the sheep wandering. The, the black wool was famous uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, you see the black tents, and you know where they came from. Uh, Paul's dad was a Pharisee. He was a, a very strict Jewish man, a, a very pious Jewish man, and apparently he was raising his son to be a great Pharisee just like he was. Uh, Paul probably grew up in, uh, in Tarsus going to the synagogue. There's a, probably a school associated with the synagogue where he would learn Hebrew or, or Aramaic. Uh, he'd learned the scriptures. Uh, probably he grew up uh, just, you know, he was a very smart, smart, uh, God-given smarts, uh, very quick to learn. When he was 13, apparently his dad made a financial commitment and sent him to Jerusalem, uh, three or four hundred miles uh, south, southeast of, of Tarsus. Uh, Paul went there as a, as a boy to live, to study under a famous rabbi, Gamaliel. You remember him from Acts 5? Remember when uh, the church was being persecuted and, and Peter and the apostles were preaching Jesus in the temple courts and the Sanhedrin says, let's kill him. <laughs> let's get rid of them all. And Gamaliel, Paul's teacher later in life, his rabbi, said, hey, that's not wise, right? That, that's not wise. If, if, if they're not of God, this is, this is going to fall apart. But if this movement, the way... The, the Jesus people, the, you know, if, 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 if they are backed by God, you're going to be fighting against God if you try to destroy them. And they, they you know, they scourged the, the apostles and the, the apostles went out celebrating. Well, this was, this is the same man who became Paul's, Saul's teacher, uh, a, a famous rabbi, uh, highest of the high, you know. So Paul, you know, Paulus, uh, that's his Roman name because he was a Roman citizen just like his dad. 
He was, uh, his, his Hebrew name was Saul, named after King Saul. He went to Jerusalem, and so he learned how to uh, exposit the scriptures as the rabbis did. He learned how to debate and argue as the rabbis did. He learned to be a scribe, a lawyer, so when someone was accused of, of breaking the Mosaic Law, he could defend them or prosecute them. He was rising to become a powerful man. Everything about his track was success, religious success, and the theocracy of Israel, even under Rome, uh, that was the high pinnacle of what you wanted to be. Um, so he, he was headed towards success. He was, he was zealous. He was passionate. It seems uh, he went back to Tarsus for a season to work. You know, you didn't get paid as a Pharisee. You had to hold down a job. And so he went back to Tarsus for a season. He learned the trade. But he also probably went back to Tarsus. He learned some of the Greek philosophies. And so here's a man that, that God has set up very well for a future work. Um, excellent knowledge of, the, of what we call the Old Testament, the, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms as they divided up the Old Testament. And then he was an expert in, in a lot of the Greek way, worldview, the Greek way of thinking about things. Um, he was just, man, primed so, for so much. But his passion was to destroy the church. His passion, and, and we don't know why, he, he thought it, uh, maybe he, he was just angry in, in Acts 26, another account of his conversion. He was enraged at the church. Enraged, like somehow the, his Jewish, his fellow Jewish people, like a Pharisee's heart is to call people to the word of God. A Pharisee's heart is to call people to obedience to scripture, to work hard, to please God. And he sees his fellow Jewish people, even priests, by the thousands of his fellow people in Jerusalem turning to Jesus. And he knows he has to stamp it out. It's like this, this plague that's spreading. He's doing everything he can to destroy the church. Um, just, just to get a little bit a broader picture of, of what was happening, um, turn to Acts 26, if you would, verse 9. Uh, there is, there's a couple of testimonies that Paul gives as he's been imprisoned about his conversion. So in the bigger picture of Luke, it's a very important story in the history of the church. But verse 9, Acts 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we see a man with blood on his hands. He's not afraid to see Christians die. He, he's not afraid to torture Christians. He, he interrogated Christians as a great lawyer, as a great prosecutor. He did everything he could to trap them in, in their words so they would blaspheme. And in the Jewish law, even though the Roman authorities wouldn't allow death to happen so much, in the Jewish law, if you blaspheme God, if you were shown to blaspheme, you were, you were sub, subject to death. Um, and so he was doing everything he could to destroy the church. Maybe, he, maybe it was something where he was just zealous to, for his religion. Maybe he was wanting to get ahead. Maybe his opportunity, he's in his early, early 30s now. Maybe he wants to show the Sanhedrin that he's the man. 
So I'll, I'll, take, I'll take him on. Right? Maybe it's a career path for him to attack. Maybe he's just trying to show God how, how, how much he loves God and how, how zealous he is for God. And I'll kill those nasty Christians, God, you know, to earn favor. It's, it's hard to know all of his motives. But here's a guy. I mean, if you look at him, you're thinking, this guy, could he ever become a follower of Jesus Christ? No stinking way. I mean, all that he's done, all the testimonies he's heard of, of Christians begging to stop the whipping and stop the scourging, all the torture he did to Christians, all the, all the people that were killed while he watched, and all, all, all the times he heard about Jesus, and, and he's just hard, hard, hard. You'd think that this, this man wouldn't have any hope. And, and I wonder if, if there's maybe even somebody sitting next to you today that's hard, hard, hard that you've been praying for for a long time and you're tempted to give up. Or maybe there's somebody in your family that's just like, nope, uh, maybe they're in their 70s or 80s or 90s and it just looks like there's no way they're ever going to be saved because they're just entrenched in their beliefs, their worldview, the things they hold on to. Or maybe there's some of the people that you work with that just curse you or, or, or behind your back gossip about you because you're a Christian. They hate Christians so much. And even though you pray and pray and pray for their salvation, it seems like, oh, hard as rocks. There's just no softness there, no tenderness, no, no, no questioning, no seeking. And, and, you, and you're tempted to write them off. Don't go there. Don't stop sharing the gospel. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop planting seeds. Don't stop loving them. Don't stop serving them. Don't stop pursuing them. Nobody's too far gone. Back to Acts 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. <clears throat> so uh, the zeal of, of Saul to destroy, like, it wasn't enough for him to cleanse Jerusalem, right? He probably went outside of Jerusalem and, the, the, and to Judea, went to the different villages, chasing down the Christians, uh, maybe went into Samaria, a few weeks ago, we saw that they went, the Christians, as they fled, they went into Judea, Samaria. But he also realizes that the Christians are fleeing to the ends of the earth, so to speak. Damascus, Syria, is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, if, you're, if you're walking that route, uh, you're, it's about a week's journey. And so he and his you know, companions, other Pharisees probably, or other zealots to destroy Christians, they're walking that path. How serious is that? Uh, it's like another country. <laughs> it's not enough. And, and the way it worked, of course, there's the Roman provinces and the, the Romans oversaw things. 
But in every little town and in a bigger place like Syria, there was Jewish synagogues. Like Rebecca talked about all the mosques in Birmingham. Uh, in, in every place around the Mediterranean basin, uh, God had dispersed Jewish people. There are synagogues here, 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 everywhere. The, the deal with Damascus, it's on a major trade route. And so Damascus is a, a launching point to the wider Roman Empire, <laughs> to, to many bigger cities and bigger places. Um, and so he's probably thinking, man, this plague, um, maybe we came out of COVID, COVID and we know what stopping a plague is like or trying to stop a plague. In his mind, I've got to stop the Christians there. If I can just kill them off there, if I can just bring them back to Jerusalem, maybe it won't spread to the other synagogues. Maybe it won't spread to the other Jewish peoples. Let's go get them. And boy, that's a hardcore way to live. He hates Christians, enraged at Christians, wants to see them die or recant. You can imagine the tortures, torture sessions that he had people in. Maybe they got to the point of, okay, I give up on Jesus. And he's, yeah, okay, you can go. But all the, all the Christians that didn't recant, didn't uh, deny Jesus, that uh, bled out um, before him. <clears throat> Was there a big smile on his face, like another one gone? And this guy's hard. And there's people around us that are seemingly just as hard around the world that are just as hard. So he's on the way to Damascus, and uh, he's getting close. Um, and suddenly, there's a, it's noon uh, in Acts 22 and Acts 26. It, it's, it's the other testimonies. It's noon. It's the brightest part of the day. And yet there's a brighter light that comes, and it's the glory of Jesus. Uh, in, throughout his testimonies, in the other, some of the epistles he wrote, in these, these accounts, Jesus appeared to me. He, he, he do, doesn't describe it explicitly or, or very intently, but it, Jesus appeared. Not only did I hear his voice, but he appeared. And the, and the light is the glory of God. And, and he's blinded, and he falls to his... his, his Prostate, you know, prostrate down. He, he's, he's, he's done because he's exposed to God's glory. Who can stand there? It's interesting, the other, the other guys there, they, they, you know, something happened, but they, they couldn't articulate it like Paul could. And then his conversion comes. I remember, you guys have heard about my conversion. I was an angry man, and I, I didn't like Christians either. I would mock Christians. I'd put Christians down. Until Jesus met me, encountered me through the Word of God. Uh, Jesus uh, came to Paul, Saul, Paul, at this point in a very, a very intense way. Most conversions aren't like this. Most conversions aren't bright lights and voices from heaven and blindness, right? Most conversions are much more mundane, so to speak, from a, a human point of view. Some of our conversions are much more of a process of encountering God and, and becoming aware of our need, our, our, our problem with sin, our, our brokenness, our, our, our evil. And uh, we come to this process of there's a God, a holy God, and, and, and I have a problem. I'm separated from him. I need, I need redemption. I can't save myself. M many of us, we go through, even through many years or even decades of coming to come to realize that Jesus is my only hope. And we, we turn in faith to him, believing and repenting, and we trust him. Uh, that, that conversion process in many people's lives, it's, it's not like that. But it happens again and again. 
God encounters people, God moves into people's lives, convicting them of sin and, and drawing them to Jesus to put their faith in him. But, but, but Saul, it's wow. And so he, he, he's, he, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Kyrios, Lord? And, and you know, it's probably, a, that could be a polite, polite address, sir, kind of deal. But, you know, you just seen in the glory of God, and it's probably more of a Kyrios, like a Lord, like, not just sir, but a, almost a worshipful title. Who are you, Lord? In the shock of his life, as, as, he, as he's about to be converted, as he's about to cross over from death to life, from hatred to good, to from the devil to God, um, <clears throat> I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow, heart attack city. Can you imagine? I, he's convinced that, that Jesus was a fraud. He's convinced that Jesus was dead. He's convinced that there's some, some craziness about these, these Christians, that they made things up in their minds. Maybe they're hallucinating. Maybe they're, they're going through all kinds of, of you know, false ideals and, and false dreams, and they believed in Jesus, and suddenly Jesus is talking to him. And, and just shocking, because all the things, like a good Pharisee, you earn your, you earn your way to heaven. You keep the law so well. The Pharisees were famous for fasting twice a week. You know, they were famous for all these meticulous rules. They would build rules on top of rules, add more rules to God's word, to God's law, add, 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 so that they could be righteous in their own strength, so that God would accept them. And suddenly he realizes that all his efforts over his 30 years to be this righteous, I've earned heaven kind of a man are poof. Because... You realize that at this moment, he's heard dozens, if not hundreds of testimonies, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the risen Lord. Jesus is the King of the world. Jesus is God. He's heard all these things, and up to this point, it's all been trash. It's all been, whatever. And then he meets Jesus, and he realizes that he's been opposing Jesus. He's been fighting against God. He's been thumbing his nose against God. He's been God's enemy. And so what hope does he have of salvation if he's trying to earn it? Nothing. Nada. Zilch. He's lost. Dead man lying on the ground. Uh, it, all these things are probably going through his mind, and it's, it's an incredible moment. As he realizes it's been Jesus who's been persecuting. Now, now, now it, interesting, just, just a little theological note here or sideline. Some of you read Paul's epistles, and Paul is also always talking about in Christ. He's talking about our union with Christ, but as he talks about our relationship with Jesus, he talks about us being in Christ. This union, this, this, this connecting with God that is so hard for us to fathom or put into words. Uh, when Jesus says, you're persecuting me, uh, this is the start of that in Christ thinking for the Apostle Paul. Because Jesus didn't say, hey, you've been persecuting my church. You've been persecuting my people. Jesus says, you've been persecuting me. And so from Jesus' point of view, as Christians, we are so united in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are in the sphere of Jesus. We're in Christ in some mysterious and wonderful way. As Ephesians 2.6 says, you Christians have been Raised up to heaven, you are seated right now in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. And some 
mysterious, incredible, awesome way. So Jesus says, hey, you've been persecuting me. I'm the one you've been hurting. And, and, and so there's this deep connection when Christians are hurt by people, there's an attack against Jesus. Do you realize how close you are to Jesus? Do you realize how close he sees you and his family as he's adopted you, as he's brought you in, as he's made you his own? It's, 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 sometimes we, we feel distant from God or we go through troubles or hardships. God must not care about me. Uh, uh, uh. Or God's forgotten about me. Never! He's written you on the palm of his hands, so to speak. That imagery, that, that beauty, he's written your name in his book of life. He'll never forget about you. He's never left you. He's always there because you're always there with him in Christ. And so it, it's a stunning, shocking moment where he realizes he has fought against God and he's hated God and he's turned away from God. And, and what can he expect other than death, other than wrath, other than being squashed by God, but that's not what God does. Um, in, in Acts 22, verse 10, a, a little bit different take as he tells a story. Um, this is in th on the, the, the screen, but uh, after he says, who are you, Lord? And, and if you look at even verse 8, if you turn your Bible there, I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice. And then verse 10, What shall I do, Lord? And, and that's, that's quite a, a moment there. Uh, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. Here's a man, and, and this is how we know he's converted. This, this is a great moment. For him, he, he realizes that all those testimonies are true, all those teachings about Jesus are true. He's the risen Lord because he, he immediately asks, uh, not, not just who are you, Lord, but then he says, what shall I do, Lord? There's a surrender there. There's a bowing the knee. There's an acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There, there's something that happened. And, and you know, so there, there's no like... Uh, Ananias or, or others, there's no like long gospel presentation because Paul knew it right away. He knew what he had to do. And so he says, what shall I do? It's a, it's a surrender to the lordship of Christ. And so there's a conversion there, a regeneration, a transformation, just bam, like that. And, and he realizes who God is and he surrenders. And when Jesus tells him, get up, go into the city, you'll be told what to do, he obeys. Now, a sign of somebody who knows Jesus is somebody who follows Jesus. The fruit of, of a tree, uh, an apple tree, it's going to bear apples. The fruit of a real Christian is somebody who's following Jesus and obeying Jesus, bearing fruit for the Lord. And so he's, he's, he, he does it. Uh, he, he, he goes into the, into the city, and, he, and for three days he fasts, he prays, he's... Uh, He's repentant, he's sorrowful, he's grieved, he's, you can imagine as, he thought, as, he's, as he's seen all the slaughter he's done and, and just the hatred he's had. And I remember when I, as a hateful, angry young man, hating everybody and angry at everything, when I met Jesus, how the tears flowed and, and how 
I, I just knew the love of God and, and he loved me and, and just the sorrow and repentance for all the words I'd said and all the, the mean things I'd done to people. And so you can imagine Saul, Paul, sitting in that, that room blind, just turning over his grief and his repentance and his sorrow to the Lord, but ready for the new beginning of his life. A conversion happened. A transformation was beginning. A justification started and a sanctification progressed until now Paul is, is glorified in, in, with Jesus. One day when he receives his resurrection body, we glorified and, and arrived, but it, it's a wonderful moment. And, and boy... If Saul can be saved by the power of God, so can your friends. If the family members that uh, have told you to get lost or they've ostracized you or they, they think you're a joke because you follow Jesus or your classmates or your friends, uh, you know, they're so angry and so bitter, don't you, think, don't you believe for a second that they can't be saved? Because everything, all things are possible with Jesus. Well, the, the account continues in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And don't confuse that with, you know, the other Ananiases in, in Acts. It's a common name. It's a, it's a regular name. The Lord said to him in a vision. So he gives a vision to Ananias. He says, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. <laughs> now, this, this is the curious, the Lord. He's worshiping Jesus here. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And, and still to this day in Damascus, there's a straight street that you can walk down where the Apostle Paul met Ananias and Jesus. And at the house of Judas, look for a man at, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vision, so a double vision. Ananias gets a vision. Paul, Saul gets a vision. Uh, a man named Ananias has come in, and, and, and he sees a man laying hands on him so he might regain his sight. But here, here's the deal, right? Ananias is like, but Lord, <laughs> I have heard many, from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is protesting. But Lord, don't send me to that guy. He's a murderer. But Lord, don't send me to Hooper to meet with that sinner there. Don't send me over to South Fork to meet with that sinner there. Don't, th that person can never be saved. You can hear the, the heart of Ananias. He just thought, he's an enemy. How can an enemy come to Jesus Christ? How, how can he be yours, Lord? And... Uh, here, verse 14, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all, calling your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Wow. There's bigger things happening than we can imagine. Maybe Saul uh, was held back from believing in Jesus until he had learned all kinds of things and all the experiences he had, all the things he went through, all the, all the philosophies he learned as a, as a non-Christian. Maybe God was waiting for the appropriate time, the appropriate time for him to cross over from death to life so they could be useful for his bigger purpose. God's plans are so much more in, in incredible that we can imagine, so much more immense and, and deep and high and wide. And Man, 
He's my chosen instrument to do what? He's my chosen instrument, my tool, my implement, my vessel to carry my name, to bear my name, to take my name to the nations. Don't limit me, Ananias. Don't limit God for what he can do in our midst. Don't limit God for what he can do for that lost person that you stopped praying for. Don't limit God by saying, he'll never come to Jesus. Don't limit God by saying, there'll never be a revival in the, the San Luis Valley. Don't limit God by believing that God can't do it. Just because you don't see it, or you don't understand it, or you think it's impossible. If Saul can come to faith, man, if Saul can become an ambassador to the nations, man. So he says, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by which he came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Uh, <clears throat> there was a, a few months ago, no, it's been like six or seven months ago now, there was this gal that had sinned in, in our congregation and uh, she was broken, and she was, suffered, was suffering greatly for her sin. And, and I happened to say to her sister, and, and there was just this moment where she just was so touched by that, 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 that word sister. Like, it, it spoke to her that she was still a part of the family. It spoke to her that she was part of the church. It spoke to her that she was still in, in, in the church, even though she, you know, she was going through some difficulties. And so what a beautiful moment. Why, why didn't Jesus just go to Saul on Straight Street and tell him what he should do? Why did he send Ananias? Why does he send you? Why does he send me? Why does he use fools like us who are, stumble over our words or stumble over our ideas? Why does he use us? Because <laughs> Saul needed a touch, a symbol of laying on hands, the symbol of transferring the Holy Spirit, the symbol and seeing his eyes opened. Uh, from a body of Christ, from believers, Brother Saul. It was like, after all you've done, it was a, it was a word of forgiveness. It was a word of grace. It was a word of welcome. It was a, a word of, you're one of us now. You're safe. We, we, we certainly need to do that with our fellow brothers and Christian, sisters in, in Christ. But it's part of his transformation. It's part of his being incorporated in the body of Christ. It's, it's a moment where the church says, you're one of us now. Because he's baptized. Now that he's come to faith in Jesus. A great moment. A great season. Brothers and sisters, uh, this, 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 this conversion, this transformation of this man, and, and so much of the New Testament was written by him. We... It took a special encounter with God, but God will go before you to the people that are lost that you're praying for. God, everybody who comes to, to salvation does receive God's, God's call. I, I, I urge you this morning to take this, this conversion story, this salvation story, this God-saving story into your life. Let's go with the gospel. Let's keep sharing with people. 
Let's keep calling them to faith. Let's keep praying for them. Let's keep looking for opportunities. Let's keep loving them. Let's keep inviting them. Let's keep blessing them with, with our lives. Nobody's too far gone. Nothing's impossible with God. God still saves people. Let's be on mission for Jesus. Let's keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what. And God will get the glory and the honor and the praise as another life turns to him and worships him. Please stand in his presence. Lord God Almighty, thank you for letting us gather with you today. Thank you for letting us sing to you today, worship you today, pray to you today, offer to you today, open up your word together with you today. It's been our privilege and our, our joy, Lord, to worship to you today. We, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the, the day you whispered our name, you called us to cross to life. Thank you for the grace, the mercy, the love that you did on that cross for us and and how you applied it to our lives through the Spirit. Lord, send us now as your church, as we go into the world. Be magnified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.